But we went to see the mayor. We basically went in saying, we know that we're known mostly for what we're against and not what we're for. We would love to change that. We think we can mobilize thousands of our people to love and serve the city with no strings attached. Would you help us, help us think it through? What would that look like? Hey friends, thanks for joining us for this week's episode on the Canadian Church Leaders Podcast. It's Jaden here. Today, we get to share a beautiful conversation we recorded here in our offices just a few weeks ago with Kevin Palau. Now, to give you a window into who Kevin is, it's probably best to start with his dad, Luis. If you're not familiar with that name, Luis Palau has been referred to as the Billy Graham of Latin America, which is no small comparison to make. Luis was a passionate evangelist who throughout his life shared the gospel in over 80 different countries and was witness to millions of people coming to know Jesus. In this conversation, Kevin shares a beautiful story about Luis, even up to his death in March of 2021, sharing the gospel to strangers in the hospital. He has an incredible legacy of faithfulness to Jesus and to his gospel. Fast forward to today, and Kevin is the president and CEO of the Luis Palau Association, an organization that started under Luis with the goal of proclaiming the good news of Jesus, uniting the church, and impacting cities worldwide. Under Kevin's leadership, this association has united tens of thousands of churches in hundreds of cities to love and serve their communities and to share the gospel. And Kevin has an impressive track record of this kind of work. He was also a part of starting Together PDX, a sustainable united movement of churches in Portland, Oregon, that exists to see the community of Portland flourish. So in this conversation, Jason and Kevin discuss the impact that Kevin's father made on the world, his family, and on him. They talk about citywide gospel movements. Kevin has incredible stories to share about the Lord working through churches in Portland and his own reflections on the conditions that help create these types of movements. Kevin also shares on his own personal struggle with evangelism, why there was a stretch in his life where he felt that desire waning and what reinvigorated his passion to share the gospel. And one last thing about Kevin in that vein. What I found most impactful about this conversation was Kevin's willingness to give us a window into what he calls the below the waterline work that the Lord is doing in him now in his 50s. He was so honest and tender, and I left our time with him with more of a vision for lifelong transformation and just encouraged to continue to open myself up to the work of the Spirit in my life. I hope you experience the same. Before we jump in, I'm going to hand things off to our friends at Compassion Canada, then we'll go right in with Kevin and Jason. Today, our world is facing an unprecedented global food crisis. The numbers are staggering. With nearly 10% of the world's population, 828 million people, being affected by hunger last year. That's 46 million more people than just a year earlier. It can be hard to imagine even making a dent in figures like that. But here's the good news. Compassion's local church partners are on the front lines and they are responding. And there are simple and tangible ways that you and your church can partner to answer hunger with hope. This year, you can give gifts of compassion that specifically target meeting the critical needs brought on by this food crisis. To give, we invite you and your church to visit compassion.ca shop. That's compassion.ca shop. Well, Kevin, it's good to be together here in Vancouver. What brings you up? You know what? Uh, a, a good friend of mine, Pastor Rick McKinley, founder of Imago Day yep. Community, an awesome church uh, in downtown Portland, and I were invited to speak at Missions Fest. Missions Fest. Tell a little bit of our Portland story. Missions Fest is, how would you put this? Like, it's a pretty big part of the Vancouver tapestry. Yeah. But I think it's their last year. It is. I was kind of sad to, uh, to to think of that. But I mean, we all know that there are seasons for things. Yep. And I, I do admire, lead, admire leaders that are willing mm -hmm. to kind of sense when it's time to let go. I don't yeah. know anything about the story. Yeah. I trust that it's a God thing. Yeah. And it's interesting. I think it's, um, I don't know if the, what the word is, if maybe axiomatic or uh, prototypical of something happening br more broadly, which is there are these things that were anchor points in the story for many years. Like Missions Fest has, has such a positive contribution um, and yet it it's transitioning or it's it's coming to an end. And I think that that's happening. 
I don't know what you guys are experiencing in the U.S. context, but in the Canadian context, that's happening at scale right now, where it's, there's a lot of that handing off turnover, end of one era, maybe beginning of something else. Yeah, I think I think that's always the case, but I think coming out of COVID and the tensions, at least in the U.S. side for sure, the pastors that I know in Portland that I, we've worked together for almost 20 years now, I've never seen a harder time. And I, th- mm. I do think that the Lord uses it and yeah. there's a sift, it's kind of sifting, a winnowing of yeah. uh, a lot of stuff. People do a lot of soul searching mm. when they're saying, asking themselves, do I really want to do this anymore? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it's fun to be in person. Mostly I'm on Zoom with our guests. And so thanks for being in the room. Makes Absolutely. it really, really fun. I, well, I think I reached out to you and I think I asked to, to be Just on. to hang so, out. I thought yeah. if we could just put microphones. <laughs> yes. No, no, you didn't ask to be on it. We were going to hang out. And I said, can I record our right. conversation? So Absolutely. thank you so much for saying yes. I mean, there's lots of things I'd love to know, but if you would take time, um, I'd just love to hear your story. Um, I, people, I, I wonder if there's a divide in our listeners. I bet half the listeners know the Luis Plow organization well know your dad and the impact he's had, many would call him a hero. And then there's probably a, a younger demographic that might have not had the privilege of knowing yes. him and his work. So I'd love to hear your story, but if you can put that in the context of the story of the ministry and your dad, I think that would be really helpful. And I know that, yeah. I'll just preempt this. I know you, you wouldn't be someone that would wanna like start citing the numbers, but the, the scale of the impact mm-hmm. of the festivals that your dad and then the ministry has been able to impact, like hundreds of thousands of people gathering all over the world, uh, don't hesitate just to let us in because I think people need to know a bit of that. So tell us the story. Well, the 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 I'll do this. Uh, well, we'll just see where it goes. We'll How see about where that? It goes. We'll see where it goes. So my dad, um, as a kid growing up, the Billy Graham of Latin America was how people would talk about yeah, that. That's how I was first introduced to him. And, and the, now for some of your listeners that are young enough, they're like, the who of who? Right. I, neither of those references helped me. But I, would, I, I think probably for a lot of people, especially in ministry, it's like, okay, I've heard of Billy Graham. So dad was the first Latin American to say, why are none of us doing this? Mm. And what, I think what gripped my dad, dad came to Christ in a, uh, in a suburb of Buenos Aires, Argentina, through a Plymouth Brethren, that's a group that people- My roots are Plymouth okay, Brethren. There you go, some yeah. great people, Plymouth Brethren. So a closed Plymouth Brethren, they called him a missionary, but he was actually um, an executive with, with what became Shell Oil Company, okay. who on the weekends would go door to door in this village, suburb of Argentina, with no evangelical church, handing out Gospels of John with Psalms and Proverbs and wow. started a Bible study. And my mo- uh, my granny, dad's mother, came to the Lord first. Mm. And, and so dad grew up in this little tiny Plymouth Brethren assembly of like 30 people. Wow. That was his Christian world. And, and there's times when I visited what was left of that, I thought, how does somebody, apart from the Holy Spirit, get a global vision and yeah. a feeling of like, you know, humbly, but like, I feel like I'm going to be standing in front of huge crowds in London and New York City, et cetera, when your entire Christian world is 30 people yeah. in a congregation that absolutely did not believe in unity. Right. Like, we're it. If you wanted to come and take communion at that assembly, you had to not only come from another Plymouth Brethren assembly, you had to be the right kind of Plymouth Brethren. You had to have a letter of endorsement from your elders, and the elders would look at it to make sure it was the right flavor. I mean, you're talking separatists of the separatists. And yet, Dad, just from his own reading of Scripture, and then eventually later, like hearing Billy Graham on the radio, Mm. was like, that's what I'm supposed to do. That's crazy. Like, Mm. that makes no sense, humanly speaking. But Dad went to British boarding schools and so grew up speaking English. And because of that, he was able to translate for visiting Americans and Brits that would come through. It's like, well, this Luis Palau guy is perfectly fluent in both. So he had this curiosity and he met different people and he just began like preaching on the streets as a teenager. He was working at the Bank of London in Buenos Aires, but during his lunch hour, he would go and do a radio program. He somehow raised enough money to go to a secular radio station and just do like a news of the day and bring in the gospel. Okay. Bought a little tent and did like um, vacation Bible school kinds of things. And, um, And yet even at that time was like, someone's got to do Hmm. big, united, the church has got to work together. Maybe because he came from a separatist environment, it's like, this is crazy. We're not going to reach anybody quick Hmm. enough in this way. So so he had this passion 
to share the good news. And a, um, a pastor from Palo Alto, California, named Ray Stedman, who was kind of known in his own way back the time, back in the 70s and 80s, he just saw something in dad and said, mm. I got to get this guy up to the U.S. to get some further education. Yeah. He happened to be on the board of a school called Multnomah School of the Bible. Yeah. It happened to be in Portland, Oregon. And um, he- Is that where your dad met your mom? Exactly. Cool. So it's kind of segueing over to, we're based in Portland, Oregon. So here we are sitting in beautiful downtown Vancouver, but, but Portland, Seattle, Vancouver, Pacific Northwest cities yeah. have a lot in common culturally. Sure and yeah, mom and dad met 1960 at this Bible school, both preparing to be missionaries. And dad then, um, his vision at the time was for Latin America. Like mm. I'm going to go and do these citywide crusades they're called. Now, as that word comes out of my mouth, I, I kind of cringe. It's you like do it wonder feels... where did they get that idea from? They're, they might well, could yeah, use I mean, it Billy rebrand, Graham you know? used it, Yeah, Billy Graham used it because in the um, post-World War II, President Eisenhower called like for a great crusade to, to rebuild Europe, et cetera. Mm. And so in that post-World War, World War II era- So it was drawing the, from that imagery. Crusades. Exactly. It, it, was, it was, at least in the US at that time, it wasn't thinking the historical crusades. Yeah. It was just a word that made sense for a grand vision. Mm. It, wasn't, it didn't really have negative connotations yeah. so much. So uh, we inherited that language yeah. for a long time. And dad, lived, we lived in Latin America for a number of years- eventually relocated back to Portland because that's where mom was from. And um, dad always had a heart to reach people. We adopted the Billy Graham style crusade. So for decades, we would go into a city at the invitation of dozens, or in a lot of cases, hundreds of churches. And you would do a kind of an historically unified yeah. effort to share the good news. And um, God used dad in many, many places around the world. It's insane. I mean, um, I was reading about Hong Kong, yeah. New York City, yeah. all over the London. world. What were what was the biggest gathering? Well, you know, the, the biggest gathering, I would say the biggest one I was ever a part of in, in dad's hometown of Buenos Aires, Argentina, a couple hundred thousand people gathered. Um, it was one of the last big ones that dad did, well, actually back in 2008. And so to sit there on the, in the widest avenue in the world, 32 lanes wide, mm. Nuevo de Julio, there's this big obelisk. It's kind of an iconic thing. When, when Argentina won the World Cup, um, you know, that would just, have been filled. That's where the celebration that, that's was. That's where it was. Okay. And it was just like this sea of people. So to be there in dad's hometown and see that, to be in Hong Kong uh, the year before the handoff in 1997, and the Hong Kong churches say, like, we don't know what freedoms we're going to have right. or not have. Um, let's get the big 60,000 seat national stadium and, yeah. and, and go eight days in a row, or let's go mission to London. 1983, 1984. Soviet Union after the Iron Curtain fell. Matt Redman, who's a good friend, you know, worship leader that some of you know, sing his songs. He's a 10-year-old boy in London. His dad has committed suicide. Wow. His stepfather is abusing him. His mom takes him to this Queens Park Rangers football stadium. And he hears about, he hears dad talk, preach hmm. about a father who loves you and, and be there. And, and Matt's like, I need a father like that. Matt commits his life to Christ. We, about maybe 15 years later, we're at something and Matt's describing that. It's like, we never, they didn't know you came to the Lord. That's a powerful picture, hey? Crusade. Like not knowing. You never know. I mean, like we yeah. know that, but then you when you connect the dots like that, that'll be exciting on the other side of, yes. you know, this side of the new heavens and new earth and we get to sort of see if we do you know we might not care I, by then we'll just be good point engrossed yeah. in yeah. seeing Jesus. but i do think that we'll get to see some of those connected dots and go wow god was doing so much that we couldn't see it's, i mean it's a it's a hard you know people tend to think of someone like my dad or billy graham as like invincible and brash and maybe cocky and but you know the the, the criticism hurts you know mm -hmm. just like for a pastor you know there be pastors maybe listening you may have a significant church or, or whatever your situation is, people think you're immune to yeah. critique. Trust me, dad heard mm -hmm. and had to process every critique and attack on this style of evangelism is a waste of time, it's a waste of money, yeah. you know, what's the point, do the converts go on? And so, you know, you're, it forces you to, one, think along and hard, you know, what is the best approach? You know, not every approach is right for every season. But dad just had this conviction that unity of the body was a biblical imperative, mm. that there was something powerful 
once in a generation, no one's saying that you're supposed to do this stuff all the time, but that once in a generation to have an opportunity for, for people within the body of Christ and outside to kind of physically see the beautiful diversity yeah. of uh, the people of all walks of life that make up the body of Christ. There's something powerful even internally for the person yeah. that goes to a church of 20 or 30 people to say, oh, even in Portland, even mm-hmm. in you know, wherever, if it's a place that, is, that it's not highly churched, I'm part of something bigger. It's a reminder. And there are people that are reached um, and challenged to be more mm-hmm. effective or, or more thoughtful about sharing their faith again, that courage yeah. from the opportunity. Now, of course, the whole way we do it, I'll get into that later, our context in Portland has radically changed how we view mm-hmm. what we do. Not the heart of it to try to reach people, yeah. but um, methodologies need to constantly be adapting. Hmm. Um, I had the honor of meeting your dad. Mm. Maybe I'm so bad at dates. It might've been 10 years ago. And uh, he was speaking, it was at a Mennonite Brethren conference. In Abbotsford? Yeah. I remember him coming up for some stuff. Yeah, that's what it was. And for some reason I was speaking after him and I was like, what the heck is going on? (laughs) And I remember looking up, like, cause I'd heard of Luis Plow, but I looked it up and I was like, oh my goodness. And what I, I was so... I was so happy to see him preach with such joy and passion. It wasn't, it was a small room considering the size of environments he's been in. A passion for evangelism. Yes. A passion for pastors. Yes. A love for the local church. A pretty contagious joy that I, you know, it's so gripping. And and I know that he and and you would be the first to admit, not without fault, but it's also very special to see somebody finish well. Yeah, it's really true. 85, we're getting up to, he, he died at 85. He'd never been sick almost a day in his life, never been in a hospital in mm. his life, healthy as a horse. Um, and yet then uh, at 82, you know, came down with um, lung cancer, never smoked a day in his life. And so he ended up having three years when they originally thought maybe six to 12 months. So so even then, joyful to the end. But yeah, somebody with no scandal, yeah. it, like not perfect, yeah. but absolutely just as committed to the gospel, just as joyful in sharing his faith with the neighbors at his mailbox hmm. uh, or the people in the chemotherapy, in the place where they'll do the chemotherapy. I mean, he was so loved wow. by those people. I can remember, I, one story I just have to... because Please it just, do. The, so here you got this guy... You know that would love to you know preach in a stadium in London, and Matt Redman comes forward or whatever. But but there he is, um, uh, you know, in the hospital. The last time he, he hadn't, actually hadn't been stayed overnight in the hospital the whole way through, but right toward the end, a couple months before he died, he went in for a routine test, and they kept him in, and and so it ended up being about ten days in the mm. hospital. And because it was right in the height of COVID, none of us could see him except mom. Right. But I began to hear like just rumors like of the impact hmm. that your dad's having in St. Vincent's Hospital, one of the largest hospital kind of in the west side of Portland. And so I found a um, a surgeon at St. Vincent's who's an elder at a great evangelical church in the west side of Portland um, and, and said like, what, what, tell me like what's going on yeah. in there. And he's like, you would not believe it. What, there's, like, there's like a line out the door from your dad's room <laughs> And he said, I'll give you one example, like uh, a nurse and I, and this nurse happened to also be a believer, which is kind of unusual. It, it's in the middle of the night, a shift change of the nurses, and this nurse is crying, sorry, I'm gonna get choked up, um, at her desk. And they're like, "What? Like, what's wrong? And she, she has no idea who Luis Palau is. She, like, right. the, Some of the people that wanted to see him were, are like believers that are like, oh my gosh, Luis Palau's here. I want to talk to him and pray with him. But this lady didn't know who Luis Palau was at all, but she's like, um, sorry, the reason she... Um, was crying was she was saying like um, I just had the most amazing conversation with that guy in yeah. room one twenty whatever yeah. whatever room was and he's like you know he'd been he'd been like um, asking me every time I'd go in there he'd ask me about my life and I found myself talking about um, you know my divorce and how painful it was and my kids and this and that and and um, uh, you know just a few minutes before I think I guess what what came out was that he had he'd um, you know looked her in the eye and just said like you know you know, I love you. I really want to be sure you're going to, you know, I know where I'm going. Yeah. Um, and he would describe, you know, heaven and um, just amazing to be in the presence of God. Like, I really want you to be there with me. And um, she just, yeah, that was, gosh, I did not expect to break down like that. But um, 
Yeah, that was dad. Um, yeah. Nobody would know yeah. or care. Um, but he just, yeah, he had that incredible uh, love for people. Yeah. He just loved everybody he ever met. Oh, that's <laughs> oh, the best. It's the best. Sheesh. It's so special to, yeah. to um, hear you reflect on his life. And um, I think we long for um, more examples. And there are so many examples we just don't hear, but for people to finish well. Yes. And that yes. doesn't just mean scandal-free, but with a love for the Lord, his church, the bride. Yes. Um, and then that integrity that goes, what we saw publicly wasn't a facade. Absolutely. Dad went down swinging, so to speak, Come for on. the kingdom. <laughs> Come on. It's so good. I was wondering, um, I know your brother is take on sort of the mantle, if you will, of that like public yes. Yeah, the public preaching evangelist, yeah. my brother Andrew. And then you, you've you taken, you've led the Plow Association and played a bit of a different role. You're an amazing communicator. Uh, but I'd love just to know a bit about your journey of yeah. um, making sense of your calling. Yes. And the part you play. Because all of us wrestle with that intersection of calling, vocation, identity. Yes. It's all there. Yes. And if you do grow up, and I, I don't want to project onto your story, but I know for many people who grew up under ministry, especially a ministry that has a measure of public notoriety or success, it puts a different kind of pressure. I think with that for my own kids. Yeah. Um, I just, yeah, I just love to hear a bit of your journey and how you found yourself going, I want to, I want to actually give my best energy to helping bring leadership to this and serving dad's vision and then taking on beyond. Well, you know, I, um, my twin brother, Keith and I, and our youngest brother, Steve, the three of us went to Wheaton College partly because Billy Graham went there and Billy Graham and his wife, Ruth, there. And, and Dad just knew that um, it was a great evangelical school with students there from all around the country and around the world. He just felt like whatever you end up doing, it's going to be a great place. And, and there was no expectation that, that I or Keith or I were going to work at the Palau Association. But after we graduated, and I, I majored in um, um, uh, religious studies, so I was thinking of going to be a missionary in the Muslim world. Mm. And my wife and I, she graduated from a different school, but we both felt like that's what we were called to do. So all my years through there, it was, I'm going to go to Fuller School of World Mission. We're going to maybe go meet missionaries in Pakistan, maybe end up in London working with Pakistanis there. That was the ideal there. So you, you had deep, uh, would you say, missional instinct? I did. Or, I did. Yeah. You know, I came to the Lord um, many, many, many times as a kid, yeah, yeah. you know, wanting to be sure over and over and over again. But I, I remember making a six, at, at 16 that year at a, at a Christian camp. And then um, Keith Green, that's a really old blast from the past. Come on. Uh, man, talk about a sold out person. But I remember going to a concert at a high school gym in Vancouver, Washington. And this was when Keith Green was really onto missions. Basically, yeah. like, unless God's telling you not to do it, yeah. every single person okay, should tell me be if doing this is right. <laughs> I think I heard that Keith Green. In, and I just, it's interesting that I love that you brought up Keith Green because we were just at a retreat with some of our small group pastors and. Um, one of the one of our our guys started singing Keith Green songs, and I was like, I think most of you guys don't know Keith Green, but guys, this is a gift that mm. God gave the church, just yes. that, that that zeal. But I heard that he used to say, um, "How many people here feel called to where you're at?" And then people, some people put their hands because we don't. Most of us yeah. don't live with a sense of right. calling. And he goes, "Well, everyone else, pack your bags." Is that right? It's exactly right. <laughs> it, exactly right. He was very, he was incredibly fiery and passionate and bold. And mm. and he was a, he was one of those real deal guys too. I mean, he comes to Christ down in LA, gives up everything, starts bringing homeless people to live at their house with his wife and the little kids. And he just, whatever he felt like the Lord was telling him to do, he would do it immediately. And, and this was, a, this was a, a phase in his life where he recognized the need of global missions. And, and so he just made a bold call, will you commit your life to missions? And of course, I was growing up with the Plow Association. So I was traveling the world and, and, and in summer vacations, we would go wherever dad was doing ministry. So we'd go to um, Cardiff, Wales in uh, 1977 and there with Cliff Richard, another, you have to be really old, ask your that parents one, or grandparents. That one went past me yeah. a little bit. So, uh, it, so we would, dad, we would go there and see that, but I had a personal commitment hmm. and, and felt that global missions was going to be part of my future, had no particular thought of working with the Palau Association. Hmm. But after graduation, my wife and I got married and uh, dad said, 
you know, just for for the just for wisdom, you know, before you go off to seminary, you just got married, take a year and work at the plow team and and just just to get settled into married life. Yeah. It's like that makes sense. Yeah. Good idea. Well, within about six months of working there, it's funny, I had grown up in it, so I, I would have said, Well, of course I get what we do. I understand yeah. it. Somehow being in that environment, I was assisting the director of the crusade department, mm. as it was called then. And I just fell in love, in particular with the unity of the body. There was something yeah. about that. And, and part of it was just practical. It's like, boy, I could, I can go by myself with my wife and try to be a missionary and maybe reach a few people. Or, wow, even while wow, we're doing this, we're going to be doing a big crusade in Singapore at the National Stadium that seats 80,000 people for eight days. And there's a big Muslim population in Singapore. Wow, maybe we could reach, maybe I could reach more people. Yeah through the Palau Association, even when I was just kind of thinking through the little bit of the narrower lens of the Muslim world. So after about six months, I said to my wife, Michelle, I really think that we're supposed to stay. And she agreed. And now that's been 37 years and I haven't regretted. There hasn't been, that, not that there haven't been dark times, discouraging times, a lot of identity kind of questions. I would say it was only five years ago um, at a silent retreat hmm. um, that I took with Tim Mackey of the Bible, from the Bible Project yeah. and a few other friends, we went off to this um, monastery, and really for the first time I grappled because there was a lot of silence, but it was guided through a lot of Henry Nouwen okay. stuff, and for some reason though I would have acknowledged it. Of course I know that God loves me, and of course I know my identity isn't simply what I can accomplish or what people think of me, but it really powerfully broke through to me that my identity is primarily that of a beloved son. Mm. And it has nothing to do with being Luis Palau's son, uh, accomplishing this or that, or how's the Palau Association doing under my leadership? And that was a huge breakthrough for me. Mm. Um, but but even, even before that, I really did have a sense of calling. Yeah. I loved the unity, the being able to work for the uni unity of the body. I loved what became our journey, 16 years now and counting, in Portland, Oregon, because it's a remarkable journey in a hard part of the U.S., a more Canadian-like part of the United States, Portland, um, to see several hundred churches of all denominations um, actively working together to yeah. seek the shalom of the city. That has been probably a game changer for me. Mm. It's kind of helped me see the whole beauty of the gospel to see what the kingdom looks like, not perfectly lived out, but to get a glimpse of, I think this is what it's supposed to be like. Mm. That kind of gave me a new lease on life, that it's not just about planning activities. It's what does it look like to have a sustainable gospel movement in a city? Mm. It's really special for me as I hear you communicate how many times you've kind of um, referred back to this idea of unity involved unity involved and like naturally the primary um expression of the plow association is the cause of evangelism that people would meet christ and yet what i i feel like is like one of the the primary things that i hear you going again and again i know there's a deep connection is that the church might work together yes um in its broadest sense and across denominational lines or generational or ethnic lines and i love it i mean there's so many good examples but you've been most closely involved with Together PDX, which yes. is an expression of the church working together in the greater Portland area. Can you tell us a bit about that journey? It really is so tied into my personal journey uh, because, um, let's see, to cut a long story short, we've been doing like traditional crusades for a long time. And, in, and, and in, globally, they worked arguably better. Yeah, You could go to Latin America, Africa, certain parts of the world where one just a gathering like that is a no-brainer to pastors. Like hmm. no sales, no salesmanship needed. Like yeah. getting together, Luis Palau coming, get done. Hmm. In the West, yeah. opposite. It's yeah. like every understandable critique, sometimes straw men arguments that aren't fair, but other times just legitimate. Like I was a part of a thing before and we put a lot of energy into it and I'm not sure what I could really say it did. So, you know, we I struggled with that. And, if, and even a few times kind of saying like, I don't know how much longer I can keep doing this because I feel in good conscience, I was one of the people, I was the person going to, you know, some city in, in the U.S. and kind of 
helping get the churches together and trying to get an invitation going yeah. when I myself was kind of having doubts like, is this really mm. worth it? So Portland became a place of um, really forced experimentation because mm. Portland is so radically unchurched. By Canadian standards, it's just normal. By Canadian standards, <laughs> Portland's revival. Yeah, that's true. You <laughs> but Bridgetown. I, but it does yeah. feel very, to be honest, like, at least if you're in Vancouver, I resonate deeply with yeah. some of the experiences of my friends who are pastored in Portland, of what it feels like in that city. Yes. Um, which is a general skepticism of the church. Um, a lot of people who not just are, the church isn't just irrelevant, they're threatened by it or yes. you know, antagonistic Very towards. antagonistic, have, have, have very clear reasons why they would say, this isn't evil. Yeah. This is not kind of boring. This is like actively harming people. Like you know what's we interesting need to stand about that? against these people. I feel like that's actually one of the big distinctions between, or I shouldn't say big, subtle distinction between the Canadian context. Like in, in Vancouver, there is that hostility, but there's also like, I think because the US has had such a, a broad era of Christendom that Canada just didn't have the same sort of cultural experience of. One of the things that I feel like if I speak to a friend who's pastoring, say in Boston or whichever city, Portland, um, while there might be actually technically more churchgoers by percentage in the city, considerably more, what we don't have here is the same hostility back. Because mm -hmm. it's, like, it's like children of divorce. C.S. Lewis used to use that analogy of post-Christendom. Like if you're a child of divorce, you're feeling towards marriage. It's like, that's bad. And I think that while we have some of that in the air here, we don't have the same hostility. If anything, it's just we're perceived as irrelevant, not even on the radar. Yeah, just like, what's the point? But it is interesting to experience, and I feel for some of my brothers and sisters who are pastoring in, in contexts where it's like, and we get some of that pushback here in Canada, but generally it's not even been on the radar. Whereas for a church that's planting in a the city, there's often that pushback. And I know that's a bit of a tangent, but I, anyways, no, that's no, what no, I'm no, observing. For sure. Well, and, and, and so for us, the churches of Portland felt like it was time. It had been, um, what, had, what would it have been? It had been like 15 years or something since there had been a Billy Graham hmm. crusade in Portland, which which surprisingly did really well. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it packed out our stadium for eight days in a row, and it was kind of a, kind of a surprise. Maybe in the 90s? In, in, in the 90s. Okay. And um, in fact, they trained more people in their Christian life and witness hmm. course than in any other U.S. city ever. Like 25,000 wow. people were <laughs> trained in evangelism, et cetera, et cetera. So that was kind of a surprise. So enough time had gone by, like 15 years, that, that the churches were asking, you know, we think it feels like it's time to do something. And we'd never done anything in our home city before. Um, at that point, I had really, I was leading uh, the, the crusade department, but I had felt like, if we're going to do something in our home city, it's got to be different. So mm. we, we we did a few things that were seemed super obvious now, and now they seem like old school. But back then, it felt a little bit newer. One was we're not going to do a fixed seat stadium. We're just going to do an outdoor music festival mm. in a couple of days. We're going to get, let's try to get corporate sponsors. Let's get the Portland Trailblazers, which they did, and Wells Fargo Bank mm. and Pacific Power. And let's have, let's bring in some great action. Let's build a skate park. And ha right there on the at the sure. park, and yeah. bring in Jamie Thomas and some Lance Mountain, some legendary skaters, and Jamie Thomas, you know, come on, yeah. So <laughs> so these kind of people came in and did a skate exhibition stuff. We have a food court and a family fun zone, and we just thought at least that's going to be more user friendly. People can come and go as they please. You're not yeah, caught. It's, it's a you're gift to the city, kind right. of in a sense. Yeah, you're not like stuck in a seat. And like my friend invited me. It's like. I'm going to come with my kids. I can come and go as I please. You don't have to get a babysitter because it's, you know, for your family too. But but even beyond that, that's still kind of that attractional. Like we we, we thought, well, hey, let's let's make the celebration catalytic part of it as positive and family friendly as we can. But the real difference was we thought so many people in Portland have such a negative view of the church. Mm. We have no relationship with our city leaders. What if we combined it with a genuine, no strings attached, loving and serving the community. Let's mobilize. You know, let's let's say if over a six month period of time, building up to this expression of love and the gospel being proclaimed in this festival, let's prepare for it with um, getting people and connecting, you know, connecting better with their friends and neighbors around serving the community. Right. So let's go see 
the mayor of Portland, the mayor-elect at that time was a guy named Sam Adams, um, who was going to be the first openly gay top 25, openly gay mayor in Portland, Oregon, especially Mm. top 25 city. Uh, I mean, in the country, that is. And um, so dad and I went to see him on behalf of this group of pastors. Um, Didn't really know what to expect. He didn't, we didn't know him, but we were going to go with a humble posture. We, We felt led to Jeremiah 29, 7, kind of as a theme verse for what's now become a 16-year movement, seek the shalom of the city to which mm. I've carried you into exile, pray to the Lord for it, for if it prospers, you too will prosper. So there's that sense of exile. Yeah. You know, the prophet Jeremiah speaking to the to the uh, leadership of Israel that had been physically taken into exile, different language, different culture, and God's word isn't doing what we tend to do, at least on mm. the U.S. side, either like circle the wagons and create our own subculture. Yeah wait for, you know, deliverance, but, you know, it's too dangerous to be interacting. Or, and this wouldn't be a situation in Canada, but down in the U.S. at times, this is our country, we're going to take it back, yeah. you know, we're going to vote our way into power. Well, in Portland, that's not an option anyway. Yeah. We're a very progressive city with a small Christian community by U.S. standards. But we went to see the mayor with this. We didn't use this first with him, but we just had this in our mind. What would it look like to seek the peace and prosperity of Portland? We went in and got a meeting, and we basically started off saying, we're really embarrassed that having lived here for decades, I mean, 50 years, we've never really met. And 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 as a group of churches, particularly the evangelical community, which is most of the larger churches, but kind of unknown to our mayor, um, his view of evangelicals was very much uh, impacted by being a, a prominent LGBTQ plus leader. So in his mind... These are hate mongers, et cetera. So the fact that he took the meeting was to his credit in my mind. And we basically went in saying, we know that we're known mostly for what we're against and not what we're for. Hmm. We're really embarrassed by that. We would love to change that. And therefore, we think we can mobilize thousands of our people to love and serve the city with no strings attached. Would you help us help wow. us think it through? What would that look like? So he was intrigued because... He thought when we became friends later on, he thought we were there. To, he didn't know what to think. It's like, what is what is this going to be about? So when it's like, we love you, thank you for serving our community. We're embarrassed. We have we have a bad reputation. We want to love and serve. We know we don't agree on everything, but that's not. This isn't the place to argue about anything. How could we make Portland a better place if we work together? Um, so he really began for months helping us think that through. He introduced us to. Carol Smith, who is the Portland Public School Superintendent, another key LGBTQ leader. And and over time, the churches in this rallying point, it went crazy. We we committed 15,000 volunteers, which I would never recommend because, I mean, it it kind of was... But you committed that many before you had... And that first meeting, it was like, we think we can mobilize 15,000 volunteers. If someone would ask me, where did you get that number? It's like, I don't remember. (laughs) But it definitely wasn't like going to all the key churches, hey, Imago Dei, hey, Beaverton Foursquare, hey, First yep. ba- It was just, I don't know. But but thank the Lord, um, 32,000 Jesus followers over the course of that six months took part in more than 300 wow. service projects. Now, half of that would have been things that would have happened anyway, but nobody would have known. In other right. words, Beaverton Foursquare's doing this and Bridgetown's doing that. Actually, Bridgetown didn't exist that was, that was pre-Bridgetown. But um, you saw this incredible rising up of the church. One, because we had a gathering of 500 pastors and leaders, and Sam came. And it was like, oh my gosh, the mayor-elect, at mm. that point he hasn't been sworn in yet, but the mayor is coming on our turf and is saying he, they need our help. Like and you mentioned that he almost charged the church to keep on working together. Well, once we, so once he'd experienced, so he comes into this situation like, okay, they said they can mobilize a bunch of people. He sees the biggest community service effort. He sees Roosevelt High School, a thousand people doing a massive makeover of the school that he and the superintendent had said, this is the most challenged public high school built for 2000 students in 1920s. It was down to 400 students because if you could get your kid out, you'd done it. Hmm. No football team because it condemned the grandstands basically on a short list of schools to be closed. Later on, we found out that one of the reasons that he and, and the superintendent put forward Roosevelt was like, 
we're probably going to close the school anyway. What's the worst that yeah, can yeah. happen? <laughs> you know, let the Christians loose. Well, it 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 revolutionized that school. Wow. Nike execs that were believers got Nike involved. They rebuilt the football field, the track, the grandstands. I mean, to fast forward, like over a period of five years, the school doubled in size to over a thousand. Wow. Um, the graduation rate climbed, the on-time graduation rate climbed 15 percentage points. That led Carol, this just like Sam, prominent LGBTQ community leader, starting off with like, I can't trust these people to come to us having seen the transformation of Roosevelt and said, let's work together to find a church partner for every school in Portland Public Schools. Wow. So that would just be an example of like the power of a united church working together, yeah. humble posture, seeking the shalom of the city, not having to pretend to be in agreement on areas of obvious disagreement. Yeah. But um, it was a powerful, powerful season. And so, yeah, so Sam stands at, on the stage of this festival in front of 30,000 people because Lecrae and Toby Mack and Chris Tomlin and all these people are going to be there and all this fun stuff. But he stands on that stage in front of the largest crowd, I'm guessing he's ever addressed, and said, this is the best community service effort in the history of Oregon. Whether that's true or not, that's, you know, you get a politician in front of a crowd and yeah. you're like, let's keep this thing going. He wow. assumed that... The plan was an ongoing sure. united effort of the churches. We'd never even had the conversation because mm. our model from the plow side was all the work to mobilize the church uh, toward this catalytic season, but then just like let the church go back to being the church individually. Sam was the one who really, um, I, I mean, it wasn't intentional, but he was the one that God used. And I remind him that all the time that hmm. God used you, Sam, to call the church up to what you assumed was the case. He assumed that the church, yeah. you guys all believe the same things. You must be working together all the time. It's like, you'd be surprised. Yeah, That'll be one of the challenges. And so now for 16 years, what we now call Together PDX, PDX is our airport code, um, has has worked on you know hundreds and hundreds of school partnerships, a massive change in the foster care system, mm. formed a refugee care collective. It's just been beautiful to see the church ongoing, unitedly working to make Portland a better yeah. place and to share the good news. We have tons of churches running Alpha. I'm on the Alpha board, Alpha USA board. That's kind of how we got to know each other. So anyway, I got rambling way all over the I place, love it, but I dude. get really excited at the power, even in a challenging place like Portland, yeah. of the church working together. It's amazing to hear. And I know that you've been able to help come alongside or inspire or just cheer on other city movements like that. And I'm just wondering, have you been able to distill down any like necessary ingredients or best practices? You know, it's like one thing to aspire to work together, right. but what are the conditions or the postures? If someone was listening and saying, hey, I, I, you know, maybe it's like, anyways. Yeah, what, what, what have no, you I do learned? A lot of thinking, I do a lot of thinking about that. I, 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 I'll put forward a few lessons learned on this 15 year journey. And, I, and I've, talk to enough leaders of, I mean, we've identified well over a hundred similar kinds of movements in the on the US side. And I know wow. Canada has some as well and all around the world. Um, so one thing I would say is when you recognize you're in exile, that really can be a good thing. Mm. So, and I would say in the West, some, some parts of the US that are more Bible belt kind of places haven't recognized it yet. But the reality of it is, is we are in exile. We are not in a Christ, we're not in Christendom. If yeah. we ever were, we're yeah. certainly not now. And I think that recognition, so the humble posture that comes from recognizing that you're in exile can really be an essential ingredient. Yeah. And we pick, you know, that passage from Jeremiah is because, again, it's, it's all about exile. Hmm. It's about what posture do you take to be faithful in following Jesus um, when you're in that situation. It kind of gets you yeah. off of things that are I'll be kind and say less productive. Either like we're gonna we're gonna force the community and the culture to become yeah. like us through political means. Again, in Canada, that's not <laughs> that's it, not gonna be an issue. You know, I think sometimes our issue is, and I'm generalizing, so yeah, I, listeners can correct me. Um, send that email. What's the email address for the complaints? Contact. <laughs> Uh, you can, don't send it to Jason at ccline.ca. Send it to Jaden <laughs> at ccline.ca. He's nodding to me from the producer seat. Um, uh, what, <laughs> what was I saying? Oh, I was going to say 
our challenge sometimes is being, um, because of our story, so timid that we might not think that we could have a unified effort. Right. So it's, it's, right. it's you know, it's, it's interesting how like our stories inform, yes, you know, and, true. and as you're chatting, it reminded me of um, John Tyson's little booklet, Creative Minority. Did you ever mm, see yes, that one? Yes. And it's just, it speaks that posture, posture of exile, that posture yes. of going, hey, is there something about when the people of God understand God's unique way of working through a creative minority yes. to seek the welfare and good of the city. Yes. And that, that there's something about that posture that has caused the people of God to thrive. That's Yeah, that's exactly right. I think the humility that comes, um, and yet humility doesn't mean a weakness or a lack of boldness, but I think the humility that leads us to ask the right questions, to mm. go boldly in a unified way to city leaders, school leaders, et cetera, with that posture of, I'm here to serve. I think you can never go wrong, even if it's one church mm-hmm. or that, that might be listening or pair up with one other church and, and go to the principal of the public school nearby. I mean, there's little yeah. things that can be done. Because when we think about the movement Together PDX, it, it maybe comes across as this top-down thing where people are being told to do certain things. It's really not that. I kind of view it more, when people talk about a gospel movement, it, this sounds like it's just semantics, but the way I think of it is we're not forming or creating the gospel movement. We're acknowledging the gospel movement that exists. So mm. when I talk about a gospel movement, it's like there is a gospel movement. It began on the day of Pentecost. Mm. The Holy Spirit came. Every single believer since then has been filled with the Holy Spirit. Different understandings of what that means, maybe different ways of living it out. But everywhere where there are believers... It, it helps me to yes. think of it that way because then it's like you're you're in a treasure hunt. You're discovering what the Holy Spirit's doing. I love that. And you say we're going to celebrate and accelerate the God's movement in this mm. city, as opposed to I've decided or Jason and I are teaming up and we're gonna. We read this great book or we heard this guy speak and we're gonna now go and try to rally the church yeah. toward foster care or. We're going to have some prayer meetings to, to unify. All those things may very well be the st- steps along the way, but I find it really, really helpful to have the posture of everything that individual churches are doing in Winnipeg or Toronto or some suburb of you know wherever in Canada. I you know when you have the mindset of like I'm going to celebrate and try to notice what God's doing mm. and try to over time maybe bring people together that share a perspective or, wow, I, I heard of these three churches that are already serving their public schools. Yeah. What would it be like to try to kind of find out who else is doing that and getting them together? What would it be like to celebrate, especially if you're a larger church and people tend to think that you are a know-it-all and you're trying to get everyone to do what you're doing? What is it like to notice and celebrate and champion yeah. what other people are doing? So that mindset hmm. is really essential, that it's not so much a program. I yeah. heard about this thing. I'm going to go form a city movement. I find it helpful to think of it as I'm going to go discover what this movement looks like here. Now, again, that's kind of cutesy. I do believe it is it is essential. Yeah. Are there things that need to be done to build relational unity among key pastors? Yes. Yeah. Do we need to find the people of peace? Um, what we call like a neutral convener? Who are the handful of people? And they usually are there that just have enough credibility. So they're, they're a convener. In other words, if they call a meeting, yeah. peers of influence would say like, I would actually go to meet with him. There, you know, He's got some, some influence, mm. defined in whatever way. It might be a marketplace leader, a key nonprofit of influence, a church that has, have, has enough stature or longevity. But if you can find some neutral conveners that are able to start that conversation, um, it has been encouraging, I think it is a work of the Holy Spirit to see more and more cities recognizing mm. their need. So I think that that posture of exile, the humility, going to city leaders asking what can be done, how can we serve, um, a, a mentality of I've got to be doing this as much as I can with others. Yep. Um, I would say maintaining a real gospel-centeredness. Most of the movements that I'm aware of have really emerged in the current context, which means it's mostly been about serving the community, earning the right to be heard, um, recognizing that in order to to build credibility, let's talk a little bit less and let's simply humbly serve. 
Now, 10 years into our movement, we recognize we'd kind of gone, and and this isn't meant, isn't meant to sound like we were doing anything wrong. We have to continue to serve. I hope we're doing more and more and more creative ways of engaging in serving our city, like I mentioned with the schools. Uh, but we really found that evangelism had kind of withered away. We started with this big festival. There's the mayor hmm. on the stage in front of 30,000 people celebrating this a massive community service effort, and then dad boldly, clearly declaring hmm. the good news of Jesus. But in the years since then, all of our energy went toward um, the community service. Right. And we really found that evangelism was an afterthought. And it was only 10 years in on a retreat where there was a bit of a light bulb moment of like, wow, we've mm. kind of gotten a little cold, maybe even a little bit ashamed of the gospel. Portland can do that to you. You really can get to that point where you feel like um, it's easier to love and serve. People in Portland will yeah. applaud justice work and serving, mm -hmm. which we should do, but it's harder to declare the good news of Jesus. Yeah. And I'm not talking about street corner preaching or door to door. I'm talking about even in personal conversations. Sure. So, I, I sense yeah. that as well. And I, um, you know, I'm grateful for people. There's so many, but people like Shayla and Alpha in Canada. Yes, Shayla's amazing. And I feel like I keep reminding and thanking God for, and reminding her that like, just keep hitting that drum like, because we lose something about yes. who we are as the church. And I, I get that models of evangelism need to be challenged and critiqued generation to generation. Sometimes we import something that's for another city or another time or another region. But at the core, it's like that, that conviction that it's good news, yes. you know, and to be heralds yes. of that good news in word and deed. And um, I do wonder in our time if... I think we need a revival of a passion for evangelism. I could not agree more. And I think we get, we get when, when the main conversation is about methodology and technique, yeah. we've already lost in a way, because usually those things come, in my experience, not always, but oftentimes they come because we're really trying to just get out of doing anything. It's much easier to critique every form. And in the end, it's like, well, what, what are you putting forward then? Mm. Because um, you can find something to not like about any kind of yeah. style of evangelism. I do think Alpha, I mean, again, I'm on the board of Alpha USA. My wife and I help run Alpha at our local church. I mean, I believe in it. I think it is, frankly, it is for today. Yeah. Churches like Bridgetown in Portland have seen it be very, very effective because of the emphasis on hospitality and deep relationships. Yeah. So I'm in favor. But you'll have people that'll critique anything. Yeah, I think if your heart is genuinely inflamed by the gospel, if you believe it's good news, that the good news is mm -hmm. good news, then you can almost make any type of evangelism. You can see the good in it yeah. and you can celebrate it and you can be grateful for Chris Overstreet, who was Bethel's uh, evangelism pastor, who felt had a vision and felt God calling him to come up to Portland. Mm. He leads 50 people on the streets like every weekend in downtown Portland and he got, you know, words of knowledge and praying wow. with people. Most pastors in Portland would be petrified. They're like, God bless you, Chris. Yeah. Please don't ask me to go with you. Sure. Like, I would be scared. But it's like when you get to the point where you can genuinely say, God's going to use. Now, are there types of evangelism that do more harm than good? Yeah. Oftentimes, but, but, those um, are rooted in something besides trying to champion the love of the gospel. Yes. It's all, sometimes it's rooted yes. in um, a sense of fear, control. Um, I guess sometimes there's really well intentioned stuff that can still. Not be helpful, but I, I, my sense is that when we've had, like when that first love fire in our heart, yes. like this is good news yes. to me and I long for my neighbor to discover it. And, and often, but there has been a cultural experience where we find that we got to be quieter, quieter, quieter. And that's resulted in, in a, a, in a, a lost emphasis on on evangelism and even global yes. missions. Yes. And again, I know that it deserves critical conversation. How do we do it in a way yes, that dignifies right. cultures yes, and right. champions local people? Yes. All of that. But I do think I'll speak from my generation as a millennial and Gen Z. Um, when those who are giving to global missions and those who are champion evangelism move on to glory. Will we in our generation have a deep enough conviction to champion it as wholeheartedly? Right. And I really, I see it in the church right now that's like, there's a, almost like a generational divide. And again, I'm overstating it to make a point because there's tons of exceptions, but I, I, I long for God to do a fresh work 
of catalyzing event. And one of the reasons why yes. I just appreciate the work of the Louise Plow Association is that, and to continue to champion the gospel and that the church would have a gospel witness and then to do it in a fresh way. Like I love that, like, do it through unity and and serving the city. And But I'm grateful for that work you guys are doing. Well, we had a, we had a, I had a come to Jesus moment personally, and then it reflected itself in Together PDX. But I mean, I remember dad, you know, so it was a pretty big shift for an evangelistic organization like ours to say, okay, now not only are we going to like include a massive community service effort with the festival, that was okay because it's still like connected to, mm -hmm. this is about relational connectedness yeah. and it's going to get more people to the festival. Like that made sense to our, a little bit of our old school thinking. But when the festival is over and the, and the mayor had challenged us to continue and all of a sudden it's like, we're going to continue to put a, some energy as an organization into maintaining the unity of these 200 churches, mm. continuing more and more school partnerships, foster care initiative, et cetera. Um, Dad and, and my brother Andrew, who's an evangelist, because my brother Andrew came to, to the Lord at 27, mm. having totally walked away. That's a whole other story. But they... I, I kind of think of it as their their evangelist spidey senses were tingling. Like they could tell there was something wrong in my heart. Mm. They could tell that that um and I I almost didn't recognize it in myself, but they could tell that part of my passion for the this other aspect hmm. of a holistic kind of gospel. They weren't, you know, they weren't criticizing all those good things. They they were in fact they would always go to great lengths to say, like, we're not saying there's this is great. But are, is this mission drift for us? Hmm. You know, and and I think that what they were really getting at was, we feel like you, Kevin, personally, are kind of taking what for you in a place like Portland feels like the path of least resistance. Hmm. And I I would get defensive and angry, you know, kind of angry, and, and they would just back off. Yeah. But I think in their mind they're like, okay, he's not ready to hear hmm. that yet. And it's funny, about six months before we found out about dad's cancer, connected to a silent retreat, um, I had this, this come to Jesus moment on this silent retreat, and I, I actually had the Holy Spirit help me to see what they had been trying to say mm. when I just had been resisting, which is that I had gotten very cold personally toward evangelism. I, I frankly think, I'm not making excuses, but I think the constant criticism yeah. of evangelism can get you in a self-protected mode where it's just like it's easier to then emphasize the things that everybody would applaud. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Portland, you know, working with the openly gay mayor and, wow, transformation of this school and, wow, the foster care system being so transformed over a period of years where at the state of Oregon level, the state of Oregon comes to the, to this, to the churches saying, let's take this mm -hmm. model in Portland to every county in Oregon. Well, wow, that made me feel good about myself yeah. and no criticism. And, and all of a sudden it's like, I had really lost my first love. Mm. I'm not saying that, that, that the things we were doing were wrong, yeah. but that was a huge wake up call for me personally. I remember standing up about a week later, we had our the timing was such that we had our staff days, all our staff from around the world in Portland. John Mark Comer, in fact, came and 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 addressed us on the Holy Spirit. Hmm. I remember that and led us in worship. And um, I got up in front of the staff in tears. It took me a long time to get it out because I basically repented in wow. front of all of our staff and said, I have been, you know, weak in my personal love for evangelism. I've been fearful about finances, all things that people knew. Trust me, I wasn't yeah. saying they didn't know. Um, I've been frankly like cold toward you as a staff. I, I was very much a type A, like, let's just get the job done. And we'd have, when, when we would have 360 reviews or outside consultants come in once in a while, it would always be like, hey, Kevin, the staff like respect you. They, they see you as like really smart, strategic. That's amazing. They don't feel like you really care about them personally mm. very much. And my response was like, yeah, it's just my personality. And I would say to my assistant, like, for like a week or two, like, okay, put it in my calendar and I'll kind of go walk around and yeah. try to talk to people. In a, in a, and I would quit doing it because it's like, this feels totally false. They're going to know it's false. From that Holy Spirit encounter, I don't know what to say except like everything changed. Like, wow. my love, sorry, I get choked up thinking about it. Um, yeah, my love for the staff. Um, um, yeah, my my rekindled passion for evangelism, um, my my 
being willing to let go about being so uptight about finances and always wanting to hold back. And so the, the timing of that happened to be just a few weeks before finding out about dad's cancer. And mm. it was really a God thing because I felt like it gave me a whole new confidence in, okay, this is the kind of leader I need to be to lead this organization when at that point we thought like dad might die in three or four months. Like I have to be right. ready. But it was a blessing for me that it wasn't like we find out that news, then I go into this dark night of the soul, like what am I going to do? And then it, it, I would have maybe even wondered like, how much of that was hmm. a carnal kind of reaction or just a human emotional reaction to this hard news? The fact that it's like, thank you, God, for taking me through that Yeah. at a time when I thought dad would be around for 10 years or whatever. Yeah. So anyway, that was, a, again, a convoluted... No, I can't remember you. what your question thank, was. It, <laughs> I, it doesn't matter what the question was. Wherever you took it was good to go there. I think it was good to go there because... You know, I, I think my prayer in my heart right now for myself and for my friends listening, for men and women leading churches and serving churches is that God would restore our first love fire. Yes, yes. That um, our love for our teams, yes. our volunteers, because there's something about life and ministry that wears at that. 100%. I mean, I, like I didn't know to how much I... I mean, I've only now been reading, you know, because John Mark's a friend. I've known him since he was a high... I mean, he came to the Lord at our Fresno... Uh, when his dad, Phil... Uh, John Mark Comer's dad, Phil Comer, was on our staff for 15 years, leading our crusade really? choirs. Wow, I didn't know that. So, and then John Mark, like, in terms of, like, a first, like, formal step of committing his life to Christ at a Palau event, and then that night he led his sister Rebecca to the Lord, you're going to go to hell if you don't. So he, pre so it's like there's a funny story that he would just kind of kind of joke about. But I mean, John Mark's um, incredibly deep. I mean, reading Ruthless Illumination of Hurry mm. and reading now and then, I mean, I feel like I'm only now, or Pete Scazzaro's Motion Healthy Leader, I feel like in the last five years, I've only begun to really focus mm. on the below the waterline work, the mm. deep work. I spent way too many decades serving the Lord out of a desperate desire to please mm. God, to please my dad. I wasn't aware of it, really. I, I made it work, but the toll that it takes. So when you read those books um, or you read Service of Pastors, it's like, I didn't know how much I needed yeah. what I would now consider to be like healthy rhythms in my life, practicing Sabbath, silence and solitude. Mm. Uh, I listened to Lectio 365, you know, our friend Pete Gregg, you know, daily. Yeah. I mean, I'm just now in my 50s mm. was working on those kind of things. So I'm sure a lot of your listeners are a lot younger than that. Don't make the mistake I did. Mm. Start those habits a lot earlier. Yeah, there's a false narrative that a call to deep inreach decreases profound outreach. Exactly. It, and it we just got to kill that. 100%. It's not, there's a version of outreach and there's a version of inreach that can be self-centered. That's right. But a true, that's right. A true like letting God impact the interior world, deeper awareness of love leads to more selfless outreach. And, and we more need courageous. each other with it, 100%. And I think one of the reasons that we need deep unity in the body, deep relational connectedness among pastors and leaders is because how desperately we need each other for accountability mm. outside our even our own structures. Yeah. Ideally, we're forming teams that listeners are forming that kind of deep trust and team uh, within staff that are being paid by the same entity, et cetera. But when you have that sense of, you know, in Portland, um, Josh White at Door of Hope is different from Andrew, Andrew DeMazio at Rose Church, who's different than Tyler Staten at Bridgetown, but we we need what we each offer. Rose Church's yeah. flavor is different and he's going to reach a different kind of person than Beaverton Foursquare at Brad Williams. And there's something beautiful mm. about being able to rest in who God made you to be and the type of church you are. Yeah. And when I look at Portland and I, and I see even the dying 15 senior citizens left, you know, to see them as an important part of the beautiful body of Christ in Portland, to know that they are making a difference mm and uh, that they're stewarding resources that only they can steward. And hopefully it also leads to things like, hey, 15 senior citizens with a church that sh should have 200 people in there, yeah. let's help you um, 
find a partnership with this church yeah. planter that is desperately looking for a space. And there's mm. been a lot of that going on too. Oh, I love that. Well, I've just so enjoyed um, our chat today and grateful that you would make time on your visit to Vancouver to hang out with us here in our office and bless you as you minister in the city today and tomorrow and then go home and please stay in touch with us. You've got Absolutely. friends in Canada. I know it, I know it. And we in the Pacific Northwest need to stick together yeah, we do. for sure. We do. Thank you. Well, Kevin, it was really fun to be in the room with you. Thanks for coming up to Vancouver for this conversation. We are so thankful for your ministry and your example today. Before we go, I want to thank a few people who helped shape this episode. Thank you to Tabitha Leedy and Josh Thompson for arranging the interview with Kevin, John Matson for your technical support, Jason for facilitating the conversation, and to Will Lee for producing the episode. Our team at CCLN exists to strengthen and envision pastors in Canada, and it's our great joy to do that through this podcast and through the various gatherings, learning communities, and resources that we share. And all of this work to come alongside pastors is only possible because we have an incredibly generous community of people who give financially. Now, if this is the kind of ministry that you want to get behind, we'd love for you to partner with us by giving at ccln.ca slash give. And if you're a lead pastor, you can also consider having your church join as a partner church. Just head to ccln.ca slash church partners to find out more about that. Thanks for considering becoming a part of this community. Well, I think that is all we have for you today. We hope that you found today's conversation as impactful as we did and that it serves you going into another week of ministry. We love you. Bye for now.